So he didn't know I'm going to ask him, but Pastor Angel, can you come up here and help me? Because I, I need some help with my first sermon illustration. Oh, Zuri's coming too. This could be even better. <clears throat> all right, all right. So maybe we'll let Zuri do this and you can help, Angel. Okay. So everybody, this is Pastor Angel. So say howdy. howdy. Or maybe hola. Hola, yeah, yeah. So Angel, every time you see him, just think about praying for him and as he's making relationships uh, with Hispanic people to start Bible studies and homes and businesses in order that they might gather them together as a church. So, uh, um, But this morning, I'm going to talk about uh, fakes, gospel fakes. And so uh, that's the title of our sermon there. And uh, it got me thinking I could use the word counterfeit. I actually had that in there to begin with. And then I thought counterfeit's kind of a big fancy word that we don't often use, so I use the word fake. So I have something we think of as counterfeit sometimes. Zuri, can you tell everybody what that is? Let, here, hold it down. What is that? A dollar. Uh, is it a dollar? A twenty. A twenty dollar bill. Okay. All right. So Zuri, um, since I'm talking about fake things today, and sometimes people make fake money. I want you to tell everybody as best you can, do you think this is real or fake? Look at it real close and tell me, tell them what you think about it. This is definitely fake. Oh, what makes you think it's fake? Because there is no president that has this face. No president that has this face. Andrew Jackson, is it the face or is it the hair? He's got that kind of... The hair? Oh, okay. He's got some fancy hair. Now, uh, let's let your dad try. So your dad used to work in the restaurant business, and he's probably seen some counterfeit bills even in Mexico. Yeah, yeah some pesos. But what do you think, Angel? Is it real or fake? And what makes you think it's real or fake? Tell everybody. I think it's real. Okay. Tell, tell them why you think it's real. Uh, because you, you can see many, many images. Images? Images, yeah. When you put in the light. Oh, the watermarks, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. watermarks. Yeah. And the paper is, is money paper. Okay, so, yeah. Well, it's everybody knows. Many times it's plastic or some paper. Yeah, it's a different feeling yeah. paper, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It's actually got cotton fibers in there. Now, Zuri, I have another bill for you. This one has a big number on it. Okay. And I want you to tell everybody if you think that one is real or fake. So there, there can be not such a dollar that has this many. Had that many zeros on it? Definitely fake. There could be not such a dollar that has that many zeros. Okay. Well, what makes you think it's real or fake? Tell everybody. It feels like it's a napkin. Oh. It feels like paper napkin. Feels like a paper napkin. That's a good description. Now, give it to your dad and let him describe it to us. What do you think, Angel? Real or fake? Yeah, this is fake because Hold that. Hold the mic. you can to, to put in your wallet this bill. How many dollars is that for? Uh, one trillion, trillion dollars. <laughs> one trillion dollars. Now, uh, turn it over and look at the back. Yeah. And see, there's all those little words. It's actually a gospel tract, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, Angel and Zuri correctly identified the fake from the real money. Let's give them a hand. Yeah. You can keep them both. You can keep them. Yeah, yeah. Zuri, you can decide from your... <laughs> she took the fake one. Maybe you should take the other one. Okay, okay. Thank you all. Appreciate it. <laughs>
<laughs> okay. I totally thought she'd take the real money. <clears throat> Leave it to kids to surprise you, right? Yeah. So we're talking about gospel counterfeits and responding to fake gospels. And you all probably know, and you've probably you know, felt money before. You've, we don't use as much paper money as we've had before. But every now and then, you know, you get some, and you're like, hey, is this so new that this is fake, or is it real? And, you know, you want to do the watermark thing, since our bills have watermarks, and look at it in the light. And how do you tell a real from a fake? Well, you got to know what the real one looks like. We've heard that our secret service that determines counterfeits studies authentic bills so that they know what an authentic uh, piece of currency looks like so they can know what a fake looks like. If you work in the banking industry, you work in the restaurant or retail industry, there's all sorts of different little hidden things in there now that they make our bills harder to counterfeit so you can tell the real thing. But when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the truth about how we are saved and how we should live as followers of Jesus Sometimes it's a little harder. There's not necessarily a watermark we can hold up to the light. There's not the little strip down through there and the different color inks and things like that. But maybe it's not. And so when we look at the church of Ephesus that Paul was writing to Timothy, his protege or his son in the ministry, Paul left Timothy there as his trusted associates because the church at Ephesus had some issues, folks. Um, You can just write down the reference of Acts chapter 19 and then also Acts chapter 20. But if you were to read Acts chapter 19, you would see that the church in Ephesus had all sorts of bad stuff going on in the church, like occult practices in the church. And demonic forces were attacking the church. Then when Paul comes back to um, say goodbye to the church at Ephesus, if you read Acts chapter 20, verse 29 through 31, listen to what it says. Paul says to the elders or the leaders at the church at Ephesus, I know that false teachers, fake, counterfeit gospel, like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock like wolves tearing up sheep. Even some men from your own group, so guys that you think are believers, will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out, Paul tells them. Remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you night and day, and my many tears for you. In Revelation, the church at Ephesus is one of the seven churches. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. Listen to what it says of the church at Ephesus. I know all the things you do. This is Christ speaking to them. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. So Paul warned them when he left and he said, Hey, Ephesian church, bad guys are going to come up and try to distort the gospel and try to gain their own following. But then uh, about 30 years later, as John recorded the uh, book of Revelation, he quotes Jesus as saying, you've done a good job standing against the false gospel and the false teachers. We know if you read on in Revelation 2, but he has one thing against them. They've left their first love, Jesus. But they had stood against the false teachers. So let's Turn in your Bible, if you haven't already, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
and verses 3 through 11. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's word, would you do that? And I'm reading from the New International Version. It says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. Verse 5. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we pray always that you open our minds to understand that by your spirit you would speak to us and with the abilities you've given us to reason, we would clearly see the warning you give through Paul to Timothy in the church at Ephesus and how it applies to us today. What it is we're to be on the lookout for and how to be on the lookout and how we're to conduct ourselves in that process. So speak to us clearly, Father, to educate us about fake gospels that we might clearly see and follow the true gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So you've got three questions today. And the first question is, what are the signs of fake gospels? What are the signs of fake gospels? Now, when it comes to fake currency... You feel the paper. Does it feel like real paper? You can hold it up and look at it and see nowadays with our bills if it has the watermark like real paper. And you can look at the print and see. The other thing you might do is, you know, there's the smell of money, right? They didn't do that. But for me, um, a dollar bill has a smell that's different than other paper. Maybe it's just because I have a big nose and it works that way. But it smells different. And I can tell that. There's signs of fake versus real. But let's look at verses 3 and 4 here. Verse 3 is this great little introduction that summarizes where Paul was at, where he was writing to, and the reason he's writing. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. If he said any longer, what does that mean been happening? They've already been teaching them. So Paul had been there for a while, three years. He'd left them to go to Macedonia to preach and teach and start other churches. And he's writing a letter back to Timothy, his son in the ministry, who he's left to pastor, that unruly bunch known as the church at Ephesus. And he says to them, urge you, don't tell those men not to teach false doctrines any longer. So even while Paul's been gone, however long that was, bad stuff had risen up. 
That word urge is a binding instruction. Command them, is, it's, it's a military order. It's pass along orders that they've got to follow. Now, it's interesting that Paul, in his Christian courtesy, in his graciousness, at least in the book of 1 Timothy, doesn't name any of these teachers. And heaven knows the church might have known them. And heaven knows he could have called them out by name. And he probably could have described each of them like Silvana talks about the way I can describe people by their appearance or so on or so forth. And I make her chuckle every time. That's why I'm calling it out. Paul probably could have said, you know, the guy that looks like such and such and sits here in this chair. And, you know, he hangs out with so and so. And when he talks, he does it this way. And this is his name. Paul could have, but he didn't. Look at verse 4 nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. So Paul said that they shouldn't teach false doctrine. He says that they should be devoted to, nor devote themselves to myths. This idea of devotion is a level of commitment, but what is it they were devoted to? Myths and endless genealogies. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Many of these believers in the church of Ephesus would have been Jewish, and then because they had heard about the Messiah uh, as Jewish people, when somebody presented Jesus to them, they went, all right, Jesus is the Messiah. So they converted from Judaism to Christianity, but that Judaism at that point in time had developed a lot of mythology. It had developed some understandings, kind of like fables and writings that weren't canonical or scriptural. And so different people would go around teaching these things that were like added to the Bible to try to gain a following. Hey, listen to me. I got a new angle on this. I'm smarter. You got to do it this way, not that way. I know you heard it that way, but do it this way. It's kind of, you know, the gospel light or something like that. That was the myths he's talking about. But then the endless genealogies, what in the world does he mean there? Endless means long or meaningless. And this could be one of the many forms of Gnosticism. Because even before Christianity, in the Roman world at that point in time, there was this religion, if you will, sort of like a philosophy that had all different sorts of subsects that was Gnosticism from Gnosis, meaning knowledge. Uh, and so, you know, sounds very similar even in our English, right? Because our word knowledge comes from Latin, which comes from Greek. Gnosis meaning you know something, you understand it. But Gnosticism was basically, I know more than you guys, or here's a certain way to understand it, so it's better than or different than. And one of the things that the Gnostics taught was that there were different emanations of God. And therefore, you had to know the genealogies of these godly people in order to kind of work your way back down the tree or up the tree, depending on how you wanted to understand it, to understand God properly. So they would recite these genealogies. So what you have happening in a church that Paul founded with people that should have known better because he preached the gospel of Christ, is that folks have come in and were teaching myths and meaningless or endless genealogies, and they were probably related to some sects of Judaism or some Gnostic teachings. So why were these things a problem? Well, they weren't important because they caused Christ followers to ignore the true gospel. And Christ followers to ignore Christ. They promoted speculation. Notice what it says there. These promote 
controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. When you're driving and you're in your car and you're pulled up to a stoplight or something like that, you know, the light turns green, you push on the gas, what do you expect to happen? Go, right? However, what if there's something slick under your tires and you push on the gas a little too fast? Maybe you're on gravel, maybe you're on ice. And what do your tires do? They spin. Paul is saying here, it's like these guys are not following the true gospel. What does he say of that? Rather than God's work, which is by faith. It's not by speculation. It's not about myths or endless genealogies, but it's by faith. So your question that we asked you was, what are the signs of a false gospel or a fake gospel? The first answer there is that it's different than the true gospel that saved me. It's different than the true gospel that saved me. Where do I get that from? The last phrase, the gospel which is by faith. You are saved by faith, not by works, not by memorizing endless genealogies, not by following these myths, but by faith in Christ Jesus, not by following any of these uh, myths about Jewish teachers or Jewish ways of life, but by Jesus, by faith. The second answer there is it makes too much of minor things. What's a sign of a fake gospel? It makes too much of minor things. Friends, even today there will be teachers that come along that elevate certain passages of Scripture above others. And they say, yes, yes, you're saved, you're believers in Jesus, but you really got to do this thing, or you really got to follow this Scripture. And anytime somebody elevates certain doctrines or certain Scriptures above all the others, you have to wonder, are they getting off into the area where they might be preaching a fake gospel? Is this heresy? Is this something we need to worry about? Because they're making too much of minor things. Think about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. People seem fixated on scriptures about, you know, sowing and reaping, and you give to this, and you're going to get back here. And it all has to do with finances and money. I want to say, wait a second, there's a whole lot more to the gospel than that. That's just one example that we see today. It makes too much of minor things. So those are your first two points. So your second question is how... Should I handle fake gospels? So we know fake gospels were around even then. Paul wrote about them. That's why we're studying it. And we know fake gospels are around even today. So how should we handle them? How should we respond to them? Let's go back to our scripture, verse 5. The goal of this command is love. Ah, Excellent. The motivation or the expected outcome for the reason that Paul is writing this is so that the Christians in the church at Ephesus would love others. Now, did you hear that? He didn't say the goal of this command is to tell those guys they're a bunch of yahoos and they don't know what they're talking about. That is not what Paul said. Paul said the goal of this command is love. And what was the command? The command was I urge them to stop teaching myths and endless genealogies. I I want them to stop with the fake gospels. Why? The goal of this command is love. Let's go on in verse 5. I love what comes next. 
which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let me read on. We'll come back and deal with those three phrases. Verse six, some have wandered away from these. So they did have a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. There's that word endless, meaningless. It's the same Greek word translated one way in verse 4, translated another way there in verse 5, or verse 6. Meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Let's come back and unpack that. The goal of this command is love. So how such love produced? Paul gives three phrases there. You might write them down. The first one is love that comes from a pure heart. Purity of heart is the foundation. It's moral purity. There's a nobility about it. There's character about it. The reason we love videos like the one that Ryan produced for us that we saw of these little kids is they're just talking honest. Why do they love their mom? What does their mom tell them to do? I mean, I've got to watch that again. There were some classic lines in there, right? And we love it that children will just tell you what they think, the unvarnished truth. They're not like us adults and think, hmm, what am I going to say? Am I going to say what I think I should say or I say what I really feel like or should I say what I think they want me to say? They don't do that. So there's that purity of heart. Think about what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 8. You can write that down. Blessed are the pure in heart. For what? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God calls us to purity. And these days we might think about purity so often in reference to our sexuality. But it has to do with our mind and everything. And the fact that we pursue holiness. And purity is a subset of holiness. And God calls us to have a pure heart. Let's look at the second one there. He says, and a good conscience. And a good conscience, that Greek word there, syndiatis, is literally joint knowledge. It's putting together two different parts of knowledge. In other words, your conscience is made up of more than one type of knowledge. Your conscience is made up of all different types of knowledge. In Romans 13, verse 5, Paul says that the conscience is the guide of life. And you know it, and I know it, that we get into a situation and we think, oh, I could do the right thing or I could do the wrong thing. And your conscience speaks to you. Sometimes it's the Holy Spirit that seems like a conscience. uh, That you are convicted before you do something or uh, after you do something. But other times it's just your conscience. You know right and wrong. And even those without Jesus as their Savior and without the Holy Spirit have a conscience in them. It's that ability to determine right and wrong. But write down 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Listen to what Peter says about that. He said, Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you to explain your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this with a gen- in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you lived because you belong to Christ. If you're pure and you have a good conscience, in other words, you're constantly seeking to choose right and love others. Remember, the goal of this command is love. And here's where love comes from. It comes from a pure heart and a good conscience. People are going to recognize that. I realize some people are going to take advantage of that because they're just that sort of mean and wicked and honoring. 
But more often than not, folks sooner or later are going to say, this person is different. They behave differently. And that gives you an opportunity to speak of the hope within you, Christ, because of the way you live. So let's look at the third phrase there. A good conscience and a sincere faith. This idea of faith without a foundation is merely pretense. Faith without a foundation is merely pretense. And your faith has got to be sincere, but also grounded in the sovereign God of the whole universe. You can sincerely believe something and be sincerely wrong. It's been said that the Nazis were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. We need what Paul says, and that's a sincere faith in a sovereign God who's loving and calls us to love others that same way. Paul says in verse 6, some have wandered away from that. They've missed the mark. That's the same word as all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like somebody shooting an arrow and the arrow didn't have quite enough umph and it fell short. I forgot to bring my BB gun in so I could try to shoot down that balloon before this morning. Leftover from last week's um, uh, Awana Carnival. I know when I was a kid and I would shoot the little green army men with my BB gun that I had to aim kind of high because the BB would go up and come down. There was a fall to it. It didn't have enough oomph on it to go straight, right? And if I didn't aim right, I would miss the mark. Paul says that some folks that are following these kind of fables, myths, and endless genealogies, they've missed the mark. I really think Paul's being gracious in the way he describes them here. Paul wanted false teachers to develop genuine love. Because think about it. Here's the way you're supposed to relate. Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus. And the whole letter is to say, Timothy, here's the way you're supposed to relate to your church. And that's the reason Paul didn't say, those guys are a bunch of yahoos, and call them out by name. Paul spoke about them graciously and kindly, yet truthfully. Paul was demonstrating the message that he called Timothy to have. Let's look back at verse 5 there. The command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And some have wandered away from these things, and they've turned to meaningless talk. We already talked about that. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't even know what they're talking about. Especially if these folks were Judaizers like the church at Galatian. Uh, Galatia dealt with, that they were guys that were Jewish, but maybe believers in Jesus, maybe false believers saying, okay, you've got a Jesus, but you've also got to follow all these Jewish laws. That's a possibility for what could have been wrong as well. So let's get to our answers of how to follow or how to handle fake gospels. Your first one is with Christ-like love. You might have got that already, but with Christ-like love. So Paul's example is not to beat up on them, not to call them names. Paul's example is that he was honest about um, the type of things they were doing, but he did not call anybody out personally, and he demonstrated what he said, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And he was nice in the way he confronted them. We have that crazy slogan for our state a few years ago for tourism, Nebraska nice, come visit nice. People want to go to Colorado and visit mountains, okay? But I'm glad that somebody is out there advertising Nebraska. We have good things to see here, too. I love Nebraska, but I just don't see a whole lot of folks coming to visit us because we're nice. But Paul was nice about it with Christ-like love. The second answer there 
is to know the true gospel. To know the true gospel. Paul said in verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirmed. They hadn't studied what Paul said. They hadn't studied the Bible. They were off in myths and endless genealogies, and they weren't focused on the truth. So we've had our two questions there so far. Let's get to our third one. Why should I beware of fake gospels? What's the problem with fake gospels? Why is the reason Paul making a big deal of this here? And then again, we'll see later in 1 Timothy. I mean, he basically introduced the book and this passage of Scripture in verse 3 when he says that you command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Keep in mind, go back to chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 that we read uh, last week. Uh, Not chapter 3, excuse me. It was chapter 6, wasn't it? I'll come back to where I'm at. Verse 8, we know that the law is good, he says, if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. Let's take a minute there before we go on. The laws of no use for people who are lawful, but for unlawful people. Think about it. A simple illustration like a speed limit sign. It tells you the speed you can safely travel down that road. That's, that's how they set a speed limit sign, right? If they develop a new road, they send a car down it, and they say, okay, what's the law in the state about what the maximum speed limit could be? But then what makes it safe? You know, if you drive arterial roads in Lincoln here, some of the arterial roads that are a little older that have driveways coming right out onto it, the, the speed limit on those arterial roads is 40 miles an hour. You get to some of our newer sections of towns where it's people's backyards that back up to the arterial road. The speed limit is 45 miles an hour. In our neighborhoods, it's 25 miles an hour. All those kind of things. You know those things. If you drive, you've paid attention to them. But it's what's safe and what we know because we can look at it and say, this is right. But who are laws made for? Lawbreakers. Have you ever seen a code of regulations and you look at it and there's a whole special section on something and you're like, wow, that kind of stands out? Well, it's because they had a problem about it. So somebody went to writing laws or codes of conduct or policies about it. You can see those things in the bylaws of a church or an organization. You can see those things in the laws of a city or a state. What's it say? The law is good if it's used properly. We also know the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers. Now, come back to what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about the laws of the Romans. He's talking about the law of God that says, here's the way you're supposed to live your life. And he's saying it's to keep us from sinning, and it shows sinful people that they have sinned, not righteous people. The three uses of the law are that it's like a locked door to restrain Trespass or sin. It's like a mirror to reveal sin. It's like a rule or a guidance to show the depth and breadth of sin. But it only points us to Jesus. The law can't save you. God's law in the Bible. The law just shows you what sin is. You still need a Savior. Um, What was that quote? I'm, I'm missing it on my notes here. Oh, I think I shared it with George Hansen this week. The law versus the gospel of Christ is like the difference between medicine and a healthy diet. 
Sometimes you need medicine to correct the problem. But most of the time, if you live healthy and there's not anything going on in your Bible, a healthy diet and a healthy lifestyle will take you a long way. The gospel is like that healthy lifestyle. But every now and then we need the medicine of the law to correct where we've gone wrong or where something has gone wrong. Let's go on in verse 9. The law is not for the righteous, but for the ungodly and sinful. And look at what it says here. There's this interesting list. For those who kill their fathers and mothers. That's actually the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. Because killing them would be the worst way to dishonor them. That's why it's different than the next phrase. For murderers, thou shalt not murder. Paul's basically counting down the commandments here. For adulterers and perverts. Don't commit adultery. For slave traders, liars and perjurers, because that was about stealing and about coveting. And for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul says all these things that are bad, these are the reasons we have the law to tell us that they're bad, to tell us that we should not do them. And we'll go on to verse 11. That conforms to the glorious uh, gospel of our blessed God, which he entrusted to me. What conforms to the glorious gospel? End of verse 10. The sound doctrine. Paul says doctrine is going to conform to the gospel. Any doctrine that's outside of the gospel is fake. Let's look at our answers to our question here. Why should I beware of a fake gospel? Because the law can't save. It reveals my need of the Savior. Notice I use the definite article the. It's not a Savior with a little s. And a one-letter word, A, it is the Savior, Jesus, with a capital S. The law can't save me. It only shows me that I need a Savior. It only points me to the need of Jesus. And your final point, the gospel glorifies God as He blesses Christ's followers. Fake gospels don't bring any glory to God. Fake gospels actually dishonor God. By distracting people from the true gospel. By sidetracking them from what can save them. By making their life burdensome. It's like adding legalism and man-made rules on top of the gospel, which is about grace and mercy and love and is made to set us free from the penalty of our sins. The gospel glorifies God as He blesses Christ's followers as He chooses. One of my favorite commentators I'm thankful to use during this study is Dr. Tommy Lee uh, from Southwestern Seminary and the father of one of my best friends. And Dr. Lee said this, Nothing should hinder the power of the gospel to change lives. Our lives or the lives of others. Anytime a church love or in addition to the gospel, it's hindering the gospel's ability To change lives. The lives of the person saying it. Or those that they're saying it to. There's got to be a difference there. That difference we see summarized in our scripture memory verse of the month. And I want to ask Richard to put it up and you to say it with me. 1 Timothy 1.14 The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 1.14. Let's pray together. God, our Father, 
we consider what you have done for us in Christ. And that by your love for us, you have set us free from the penalty of our sins, but also from the burden of guilt in our past. And that as you've set us free, it's in order that we might bring glory to you and show our love to you and live a life that gives the same grace, mercy, and love to others as you've given to us. So, Father, as we consider any fake gospels that may be floating around in our world today that we may know of in our lives, would you remind us of how to deal with those with love and with a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith that we would kindly deal with others with whom we disagree and lovingly point them back to the truth in order that we might bring glory to you. So God, I know as adults, even as teenagers and children, we're going to face controversy and disagreement. And my prayer is that we might follow Paul's guidance as inspired by your Holy Spirit and Scripture in the way we handle that. So God, we ask you now that those that need to trust Christ as their Savior, they need to do that this morning. They do it. For those of us maybe that need to repent of being a little too much of a bully or a legalist ourselves in the way we handle scripture or doctrine, that we would repent and turn from that. Maybe, Father, we need to talk to somebody that's here in this room and ask their forgiveness. Maybe we need to step out and send a text message or make a phone call. Whatever it is, would we obey you and we demonstrate how to handle fake gospels? in our lives, with love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.